This episode of No Wrong Answers is brought to you by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes teachers deserve to be celebrated and their voices elevated. Find out how you can join their movement of passionate educators in Kansas City by going to teachforamerica.org or find us on Twitter at TFA underscore KC or on Instagram at TFA KC. Students at a high school say transphobic things in a group chat. Other students hold a sit-in demanding action. How should a teacher respond to both groups? Plus, teachers have known for a while that school spending in the U.S. is going down. But guess what? Other developed nations, their education funding is going up. Our teachers discuss that. We also have another installment of Ask the Teachers and, of course, Kids These Days on this episode of the No Wrong Answers podcast. Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the weekly podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. I'm a former teacher turned public radio journalist. And I'm joined, as always, by a group of hardworking teachers who are ready to talk. So let's introduce them this week. Greg Brenner, what do you teach? High school social studies. Jamie Myers, you're back after a hiatus from (laughs) joining us, but you're back at the table. What do you teach? Eighth grade applications. And what does applications mean exactly? I have turned it into a writing course that I can have students practice things that they can do after school. So uh, applicable things for their life. Interesting. And David, personally, what do you teach? High school math and computer science. Well, David, Jamie, Greg, thank you all for joining us. They are all public school teachers in the Kansas City metro area. Well, let's get to our first topic. What do you as an educator do when a student says or does something that offends you or offends other students? might be racist, homophobic. How do you punish that student in a way that feels like that student might have learned something? And how do you make other students who may have been hurt or offended feel safe again? These questions came up in our minds as we read about a story from a Kansas high school recently that made national news. More than 100 students at Lawrence High School in Lawrence, Kansas, about an hour away from where we tape No Wrong Answers in Kansas City, Missouri, staged a sit-in in the school's main rotunda during the school day in protest for what they say was inaction on the part of the school administration after much of the school's senior class was reportedly involved in a group chat that contained several transphobic slurs and other offensive comments about transgender people and students. As reported by the University Daily Kansan, I should say that is the campus newspaper of the University of Kansas, which is in Lawrence, the students at this high school conducting the sit-in say they initially complained to administrators about the group chat and the slurs it contained and asked that the students leading the chat be punished. Many of the ringleaders of the chat, according to the protesting students, were athletes at the high school, including several prominent football players. And one of the key demands was that these football players not be allowed to play in the next game. The administrators reportedly said they could not do anything about the chat because it happened outside of school and did not involve a school activity or club. So the protesting students staged the sit-in as a response and also issued a longer list of demands. In addition to demanding that student-athletes involved in the chat be suspended from playing their games, they also demanded the students in the group chat be assigned five one-hour detentions led by an LGBTQ advocate and that the offending students be made to write an apology to the school's transgender students. They also demanded an administrator take on the task of dealing with issues of discrimination in the school and also the creation of a panel comprised of students and teachers who would also be involved in investigating issues of discrimination and determining appropriate responses and punishments when issues like this arise. 
Since that sit-in, the Lawrence High Budget, that's the student newspaper at this high school, reports that transgender students and students identifying as gender non-binary still feel unsafe, as one of the sit-in organizers said three days after the sit-in, quote, so many people are upset it was hard to walk in the halls. All we were asking for was to feel safe at school. That same student reported getting harassing phone calls and being yelled at in the hallways at school. We should say all this is happening at a high school that, as the school newspaper notes, has taken notable steps in recent years to attempt to create a more inclusive environment. Lawrence High, for instance, has a gender-neutral bathroom and does not use the terms homecoming king and queen, but instead refers to them as homecoming royalty. School administrators, after this incident, say they are trying to convene an advisory panel of students, club sponsors, and teachers to, quote, discuss these issues and to develop awareness activities and training for students around concerns of our LGBTQ community. Those are the facts for my teachers. There's a, there's a couple of groups of students that I, I guess I want to get your thoughts on, right? So there are the groups of students who did the offending, right, said the the transphobic things. But then there are the groups of students who who feel offended, not only feel offended, but feel threatened, feel unsafe. Um, so let's take that second group first and we can get back. And you, you, I kind of already started to mention, you know, with the, with the offending students, you know, education will help. We can get back to them. But let's focus on this group of students who were offended, now feel unsafe, now feel like their school is not a welcoming environment. As an educator, what do you do to address and allay their concerns in this kind of tense moment when, um, at least at this school, right, they're, they're having sit-ins, right? They're, they're that upset. What do you do? I just really think that having education will be helpful. I don't know if punishment is possible because it was after school, but education is what needs to happen. Kids have to feel safe at school. That is paramount, obviously. And there's no reason for a student to feel like they can't walk down the hallways. But I think rather than trying to punish because it's, I mean, an outside of school activity. I've come up against this in the middle school where kids are doing things on social media that they shouldn't be doing, but we can't punish them at school. The next step would be to contact police, you mm. know, make it make, because those are the people that can handle it. But education. David, how do you feel? Um, lots of thoughts. Um, I believe even though actions may happen outside of school grounds, if it does create, I would need to know the language on it. But if there was, like, legitimate reason for discomfort or feeling threatened being in the school community, even if it was actions that occurred outside of school, I think that you would need to, if not necessarily take some action, be intentional about pushing forward programming or things to students mm -hmm. to embrace and learn how to be more tolerant. Uh, David, Short of having administrative remedies, which I'm getting the sense from the table that that is hard to do in a situation like this where the behavior is off campus, even as much as maybe we would like to try to deal with it and punish it, so to speak, I guess, how do you, how do you talk to a student who is feeling um, unsafe or offended or doesn't know, you know, if their classmates respect them for who they are? How do you, how do you as an individual educator yeah. deal with that student? Um, I've had this happen on several occasions um, with students more around questioning their sexuality. And I, I mean, I just kind of have them talk through some of the experiences they've had, um, how it's making them feel if they have peers within the student body who they feel like they can lean on, um, whether or not they voice their concerns to their administrators, right? Because in a lot of cases, what a lot of students in my school, I don't think they do. Um, and I actually, like, Upon reading the article, I found myself like 
at least impressed to the extent that the administrators created a space for those students to like have that sit in. And I think that truthfully is still eons ahead of what some other schools might have tried to do in that situation, right? Um, or even having a GSA in general um, and things like that. So I think, I think in an ideal school setting, every student has at least one or two teachers that they can come to and talk to about that, right? And, and I've been that student for several kids and, they, and you know, they just kind of come to you and say, hey, can I talk to you about something? Um, you can also recognize it too. Um, I remember when a few students like really started facing some serious bullying and I could kind of see their response to it. And you know, you try to check in on them and talk to them and at times they're willing to open up and at others and yeah, you just kind of got to keep your ears on the ground um, mm. and hope that they find some adult or peer to lean on in those situations. Do really issues hard. of like sexual orientation, sexual uh, sexuality, do those issues pose a particular um, challenge? Uh, do, do you find yourselves fighting battles over um, students making comments and, and about uh, sexuality and sexual orientation, particularly um, when we're talking about things that are that are offensive that are being said among students. Yeah, constantly. Constantly. Yeah. And what, um, like, how like, so, like, how so? In, what is it? What is it? How in, does it manifest itself? In jokes and remarks that, you know, they may consider funny, that would be really, really offensive to, to other groups. You know, I, I, I have to just speak to my own personal experience um, as an African-American male going to a college that was predominantly white. And, like, there's flaws in this parallel, but, you know, you'd hear remarks from people that, you know, had... <laughs> racial undertones and subtleties to it and and you know you have to find a nuance between trying to call them out and not putting yourself in harm's way and for a lot of students at our schools who may f- be offended by those remarks um you know with regards to their sexual orientation they they feel really scared to speak up because they know they might not have anybody to lean on um i think it's really important for our students to understand that you really never know who's next to you I think in the context of high school and even middle school, right, where, like, social, social stature is so grounded in, like, coolness and, like, a lot of time I don't even necessarily think kids have negative opinions and sentiments towards a certain group, but just <clears throat> know that saying a certain thing might, like, elevate their coolness because, you know, unfortunately there is a trendiness at times in putting down other people to build yourself up. And that's usually my angle of attack and calling out why it's wrong and telling them, like, you don't build yourself up by putting others down. That's not, yeah. that's not a cool thing, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, Jamie, Greg, do you agree with David's kind of idea that uh, this sit-in, uh, you know, as maybe as, as hurtful as the, the things that prompted it were, the sit-in itself was something um, like something that m- probably wouldn't happen at a lot of schools? I definitely agree. I, I mean, <laughs> I come from a rural district, and the opinion that that – that, you know, LGBTQ question, you know, slurs would be a problem, would not be the popular thing. And there wouldn't be a call for a sit-in in my, in my district. And there wouldn't, there's not even, I don't think there's, there might be a club at the high school for the LGBTQ and the Alliance group, but I don't think there is. So interesting. So in a setting like that, how do you talk about this stuff? Well, I'm probably that teacher that the kids feel comfortable coming to and talking to. And I am very open about certain things. You know, I have gay parents, so it's a big deal for me to not allow any type of bashing. And the students know this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, 
you, does that when you tell them that when you when you say that about yourself does that make does that open up some of their eyes does I that think make so them, I know? think so because it takes you know um, it kind of they're a little taken aback at first but then they're like but you're the same teacher so it doesn't really matter and I think just knowing that I can be there for some of these students and letting them know that you know, I grew up with the same type of struggles just because I'm not gay doesn't mean that I didn't have teasing and, and slurs and bashing towards me, even from my own family members. So I can be that alliance person for you. And that opens up the, the discussion, too, for class. It makes it so that <clears throat> they understand where I'm coming from when I tell them, like, you cannot say things like that here. I won't allow it. Uh, even as we were preparing this topic this week, there was another incident at another Kansas high school, this one closer to uh, Kansas City where we tape no wrong answers in a suburb called Olathe, Kansas. It was during Olathe Northwest High's homecoming parade, members of that school's Gender Sexuality Alliance, who were marching in the parade with other s- student groups and clubs, uh, members of this GSA group say some of their classmates along the parade route yelled slurs at them, threw things at them, booed them. Multiple media reports from around the Kansas City area say some of these students heard the phrase, make America straight again, chanted at them. Uh, the district in this case said the very next day that an investigation had begun. A letter was sent home to parents. District officials said students involved with the taunting or the the slurring would be punished. Of course, this happened during a school event, so that maybe might negate the problem you had mentioned earlier about the Lawrence example. But I guess with students who hold or espouse or spout offensive views, um, they are still your students. And so I wonder... Um, that's the second group of students that I mentioned earlier that I wanted to, to at least get to. What do, you, what do you do with them? Like, how do, you, how do you approach them? How do you address them? And how do you still try to be a teacher to, to those students? And two examples of that just recently. Um, since I coach soccer, I'm, I'm almost, right now, especially in the fall, I'm, I'm with the soccer team, I think. I feel more so than with any other group of students. And whenever a couple of the soccer players decide to be knuckleheads in class, I get to hear about it. And... Uh, a couple of soccer players decided that they really like one of our new paras, who's a young Hispanic uh, teacher and an adult, pretty, an adult, yeah, but yeah. Per, but pretty young. And so they're they're doing things that are making her feel uncomfortable. Um, one, I guess, actually got down on his knee and proposed to her. And and I could see from his understanding, like he said, "Well, I was just playing around." And part of it's just ignorance, just not real, really realizing the harm that he is causing, the discomfort that he, is ca- that he was causing. And so it, it was one of those instances where at practice, I just had to pull him aside and just say, hey, I, I hope you understand that that is sexual harassment and, and making it very clear because they just didn't understand the boundaries. A lot of the kids, I, d- I don't think that most of most teenagers would say, well, I'm just playing around. I'm just joking, right. using that as, as their, their shield. And they may not really realize that they're crossing boundaries that they, sh- that they shouldn't. So part of it is just education. Yeah, you know, so interesting. So that example, that example feels a little bit easier to deal with than with, you know, sure. it, as offensive as the behavior might have sure. been. If it's just based out of pure ignorance or maybe a misguided, mm-hmm. you know, kind of teenage feelings or whatever. But, like, what if you have a student who, like, let's take these examples with, with, with the transphobic slurs both at the homecoming parade and, at, and on this group chat at, at the other high school. Um, these students might come back and say, well, being gay offends me, so I get a right to, mm-hmm. to, 
say, you know, this is my free speech. I, I'm offended by what they're doing. So it's, you know, so there's like, and I, I hear that, I hear that excuse being made a lot in a, a lot of different settings in America today for not just around, you know, LGBTQ issues, mm-hmm. but that this is my free speech. This, and this is free speech is something we've brought up before on this podcast before. So like in, in that instance, when maybe the, the student doesn't see um, or has not gotten to a place personally yet where they, they might see how what they're saying is offensive, Right. How do you deal with we, that? <laughs> we had we actually kind of brought this up in my in in class because we're going over in my government class checks and balances and, and the kids are really are realizing that Congress can't impeach the president and so they, they brought up wait can Congress just impeach Trump can they, and I'm like well there has to be a good legit reason why and they they, they can't just impeach him because he's racist I'm like. N- no, <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. This is, you, you got to think like liberty. You yeah. have the liberty, you have the freedom to be unfortunately as stupid as you want. However, we do have the fact that we have to maintain a classroom environment. Yeah. And so there, I think that's where we, we can hold the ground and say, look, we have to make every student feel safe. And no matter what, we are a community and bringing it back to that. It's like, look, whatever you're, you're saying, yeah, you may have those feelings, but you cannot express them in class because you are harming the community. Yeah. I... I'm trying. So for me, when I try to, like, engage my students on this stuff, again, just because, like, I, try, I, I always try to think through the lens what makes it relevant for them. My student body, body is predominantly African-American, so I try to get them to think about different experiences where they face discrimination, right? And it's like, look, you can speak your mind freely. You do have the right to free speech. But what is the purpose of what you're saying? Does it actually benefit you in any way, shape, or form? And then kind of going back to that, elevating yourself in the context of social stature. But it's it's really, really hard, I think, especially in majority spaces to be like, well, what if I made you feel bad about being white, right? Like, that's not something that's going to necessarily compel or really resonate with people because that seems so odd because that is the majority group, right? The issue is when you have marginalized groups or, like, minority groups who feel this tension but don't have the space or clout or just sheer numbers to actually, like, name those issues. And that's where I think, like, being an ally is so important, even if you don't necessarily identify with the group you're defending. But for my kids, trying to make it relevant to them, that's one of my angles of attack. But, I mean, in more rural settings, I... It's like if you have a, a white, straight football player, male... <laughs> you can't really say like imagine if someone had discriminated against you because you're a white straight male. Yeah. They're just like <laughs> what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. So then it was like and like that that I mean in my opinion I would think that would be so hard for them to rationalize because that is rather uncommon. Mm-hmm. Um there's examples I think more now as of late especially with terms like white privilege being thrown around a lot like has the like, has the national conversation I mean, I, I use that term, but, you know, with events like Charlottesville and, and with yeah. events like the um, the protests at different Confederate monuments and, and everything that that has stirred up, that has filtered down to your class? Has that, has that come into your schools at all? Is this affecting these types of conversations mm-hmm. at all? Well, <clears throat> I would say that the minority population in my district is very – they don't have the voice. They, the – Behaviors in Charlottesville and the way that President Trump had defended himself was applauded by, you know, most of my students. The students that think it's reprehensible don't have a voice. And that's where I'm the alliance. They come and talk to me and I I 
talk it out with them and I say, I know, I understand that it's really hard, but... And when you say it was, when you say it was applauded by your students, there were, what, what, do, you, what a, do you mean? What, what, what happened? What, what did they say or what was it? They just laugh it off and think it's awesome and like, yeah, he just did such a great job. You know, they, they appreciate... And why do they say it's awesome? Like, do they, do they give a do they give a rationale or do they? I try to keep politics out of my classroom, yeah. so usually this is just in passing. And I <laughs> because I can't. Going back to free speech, it has been told to us that as teachers we don't have it in the classroom, so we can't say whatever we want to say without our own repercussions. And so I try to keep politics out of the classroom because I like my job. And don't want to get, yeah, get in trouble. Yeah. Um, so most of the time, the things that we hear about what's going on nationally, and granted, I teach eighth graders. They're 13 and 14. They really don't understand the repercussions of, of what yeah. is happening. They really don't until something happens. <laughs> but they just, and I guess I'm chalking it up to ignorance. They don't know. They don't know that what they're saying so I'm curious from your from your vantage from your from a personal standpoint you're I think based in this conversation your political views are on you know are on the table pretty clear how you feel <laughs> right. and it doesn't sound like it matches up with a lot of either the students themselves or the families they come from or the people who live in your district. Right. So how I don't want to say how do you soldier on but I mean like how do you like what is what do you see as your role in, in, in your school setting then? Like how do you, you've taught there now for 10 years, for 10 years. Yeah, you've been there a decade. Yeah. yeah. I try to build that community. I tried to build the respect and you know, if somebody is saying something that brings down the community, I keep, I just keep it out. And you know, I do address that. Yes, you guys do have free speech, but I, and I really like, you know, the idea of saying, what is that doing for you? How, what is, how is that helping the community? How is what you said benefiting this community? Our podcast today is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City, which believes one day all children will have the opportunity to attain an excellent education. You can make an immediate impact on that mission in Kansas City. To find out how, visit teachforamerica.org or find them on Twitter at TFA underscore KC and on Instagram at TFA KC. Moving on to the next segment, America is spending less per pupil in public education, even as most other economically developed nations in the world spend more. That's one of the headline conclusions of the annual report on education indicators released by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. That is an intergovernmental body of 35 member states, including most nations in Europe, North America, plus Japan and South Korea. We first found this story in the Heckinger Report. The OECD report says that from 2010 to 2014, average spending per pupil in the U.S. dropped 4%, while average spending across the OECD's 35 member states increased 5%. In some countries, spending increased by a lot more than that. For instance, in the United Kingdom, it went up 32%. The authors of the report were sure to note two caveats. First, though spending per pupil has declined in the U.S., America still spends more than most other nations. In America, it's a bit more than $11,000 per student on average for primary grades compared to the OECD average of just over 8000 
Second, the authors point out, as is often noted in discussions about school spending, the line between spending and student outcomes is often muddled and not cleanly proven. More money does not necessarily mean better results. There are plenty of nations that spend less than the U.S. on education, but whose students score higher on internationally normed tests. As the Heckinger Report points out, many other nations spend their resources very differently than the U.S. does. And many Asian nations, for instance, included in the OECD report, average class sizes are much higher than in the U.S., double, sometimes triple American averages. America spends a lot more of its resources trying to keep down class size by hiring more staff. Also, teachers in many other nations spend less time actually teaching and more time in professional development are working on giving students feedback. One particularly striking figure in this regard whereas teachers in the U.S. spend roughly 1,000 hours or more teaching in class every year. In some nations, like Japan, that is down around 600 hours per year. So this is the question I have after reading this report, because we've talked about education spending before on this podcast. Spending levels in the U.S. are falling, yet other nations can prove you can do more with less. So how would you all as teachers be willing to balance that equation, I guess, is the way to put it. Would you, for instance, be willing to take on Bigger class sizes if it meant more professional development for you. We'll start with that question. My gut reaction would be, heck no. Um, <laughs> partly because of just the, the sheer amount of bad professional development I've been a part of. Um, however, in recent years, the professional development ha- I, I have been involved in uh, has, has significantly increased in quality and, and um, very, very necessary things that I think all teachers, and not just the the new teachers that we have at at my charter school, um, that we need to cover. And so, in in that sense, if it's if it's quality professional development, especially for younger teachers, um, then yeah, I, I I think I would take that trade. I'd I'd take thirty kids, thirty five kids in my classroom if if I got quality professional development and adequate time enough to implement those things that I, that I'm learning. Forty kids. 50 kids? <laughs> Where's the okay, line? well, well, now don't push it. Uh, bigger classes, more time for PD and more time for doing, like, out-of-class development for yourself as a teacher? Yeah, within reason. I, I'm really into professional de- development. I, I'm so focused on the pedagogy and, and craft, the teaching. That's, like, what gets me excited. It's like, am I explaining this solution to this math problem in the best possible way? Do you feel like you get enough time for that right now? Um, no. Yeah. Um, I don't. And I just make it a point to focus on it more because it's important, but it usually costs me sleep and lots mm-hmm. of other things I'd be doing, which is okay. Um, I know that. But I think some teachers, I don't want to say underestimate, but don't focus on pedagogy as much. Um, and I'm thinking particularly in math where, like, there's been this huge, you know, rollout of Common Core and all this resistance and things like that. Um, but, you know... It seems like even though building relationships and, like, working with young people is a skill separate from pedagogy, like, actually teaching and being an effective instructor goes so far beyond that. And I don't necessarily know if a lot of people understand how important that is and how much that can really yield um, high results in the classroom. Uh, Jamie, what trade-offs are you willing to make? What would you... Would you be willing to have bigger class sizes if it meant more PD? Well, according to the article, they said that um, teachers in other countries are also getting time to observe Mm -hmm. their colleagues. And I think that is a huge piece of PD that we've been begging for in my district for a really long time. And I understand principals are overwhelmed, but we've had, you know, 
principals tell us, hey, I'll come cover your classroom. You go watch whoever you want to watch. Uh, we even had a day where we were told to go out and find teachers in other buildings, like other districts to watch. Just so happened that on that day, most of the other districts near us were on their own in service, so they weren't <laughs> right. teaching. And so I, I think that piece of PD would be like very, very beneficial. And I would take on more kids to do that. I would also think that some of that PD would help with managing class sizes that big. Because right now, we don't have the space for 40 kids in my classroom. Right now, we don't have the desks for that many kids in my classroom. But hopefully, you know, with spending, you know, the the per-pupil spending could replace that, then I'd be more than willing to take on more kids as long as the behavior management was, you know, brought back. Uh, so the the report mentioned on average um, eleven thousand dollars per student is at least for primary grades. That's the average in the U.S. Are you all aware of what your districts or schools? We should say two of you teach at charter schools. Um, are you aware of what your districts or schools spend um, per pupil? Is that widely known or discussed or talked about within your schools and districts? For me, in in our charter school, I I don't know, um, and the budgets always kind of fuzzy because it's just thrown out there and it's used for multiple things. Um, I, the question I had when I was looking at the report, too, was uh, does that include sports and athletics and other extracurriculars? And that's something that a lot of other schools in other countries don't have. They, they, they don't offer, and it's such a big part of American schools. Um, and I wonder... For better or worse, if, for, for better or for worse, right. <laughs> right. Um, so the money that we pour into schools... How much of that is going to athletics and, um, say, theater, drama, well, other uh, other things that other countries don't have to? That was going to be my next about. question, right? So I guess spending per pupil can often be, I guess, abstract or ambiguous. Yeah. Um, you get this number, and you think about some people might look at eleven thousand, be like, "Whoa, that's a lot." Some people look at eleven thousand and be like, "That's not enough." But what? How is that? How is that money being spent in your classroom? I'm impressed that Greg knows. I don't ever see a budget at all. Like, <laughs> if I don't go to a board meeting or if I don't yeah. read the minutes, I don't even know what's happening yeah. as far as hiring goes. I know this year we got about eight new teachers district-wide, and that was a result of the increased budget for this year. As far as my own classroom goes, my classroom budget has been $100 for seven years. So like what you can spend personally, right? Right, yeah. and so basically that's nothing. Like I can't buy anything for 140 kids with $100. Uh, so last question, I guess, in this segment, what does that per-pupil spending stat, that number, what, is, what do you think that tells us? Like how should that be interpreted by maybe people who don't know school spending that well? I really got into the weeds on this and like looked at state, county averages, Um and I learned a lot, and I just want to, like, impart a little bit of that knowledge, if that's fair. But um, so, like, of the 50 states and their funding formulas, I think 28 have what are considered progressive funding formulas in that um, when you allocate all the local, state, and federal tax dollars and then decide how to reallocate those, um, lower-income districts in poor areas would get more funding than wealthier districts do. And like that's, the formula, yeah, weights it towards, exactly. yeah. And that's different on a state-by-state state basis, but 28 of those states have a formula that is considered progressive in the technical sense, but I think it's at like 16 of those 28, um, even at the end of the formula, only have the more needed regions getting like 
around $150 more per pupil, which is like statistically irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. basically. So um, I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. I think Missouri's right around the average. Um, I think it shows, though, because like I was looking at some states like New York and um, a lot of states on the East Coast that I have pure people spending, and that's like one and a half times the national average, and their ACT scores are through the roof, and they tend to send lots more students to, you know, um, more competitive colleges. So I don't know if, like, you know, the people in those regions are wealthier, and that's the reason why it's happening, but especially in, like, more rural regions um, in the Midwest, it was, like, consistently below the national average in this area. Um, And so I would be curious if there's any way to, like, solve that problem. Are we just, like, not funding education here in the same way that other places are? Do we have less resources? Well, yeah, and then another big factor that we haven't even brought up, which we've we've talked about in previous episodes, but the whole idea that the basis for the American, for for funding American public education is local taxes, Mm -hmm. local property taxes, which um, I don't know if that system is replicated to a large degree in other countries. I don't think so. Well, we'll move on to the next segment, what we call Ask the Teachers. Cue the music. Our listeners can chime in with questions, problems, issues, dilemmas they are experiencing at work. Consider it Dear Abby for Teachers. Our question this week from a listener. Teachers talk about, quote, holding each other accountable, end quote, when working in groups or teams. How can this be done realistically and effectively? So you're working with teammates, grade level teams, whatever, and you're always told to hold each other accountable. Probably tell students that too when they're working (laughs) in groups. (laughs) Um, But how do you as a professional do this realistically and effectively? Do you have an especially good memory? That is really tricky, um, especially if you are, are dealing with teachers who have a lot more experience than you. Uh, I am our PLC lead for social, for the social studies department, uh, and so just trying to set up consistent norms, and we just try to follow those norms and just point those out when, when they need to, but sometimes it's really difficult to do when, hey, everybody's an adult here, everybody has, there's other things going on in other people's lives, and so sometimes maybe a, a person comes in late, which violates one of our norms, but it, it, it's it's difficult because you... Do you, you call them on it when they when they come in late? You know, and maybe not like in front of everybody, but just go, hey, you know, what's going on? Because you don't want to, yeah, there's a time and place for that, right? It's, it's, for me personally, it's a difficult thing to do, but I think like trying to do it as professionally as possible... And just to at least stick to those norms, hey, we have these, what's going on? And try to be as understanding as possible. Is there anyone at your school that has more experience than you know? Um, there's, a, just, there's a couple. There are there's a couple. A okay, all right. Uh, how do you hold each other accountable? We have those norms, and we have um, collaboration meetings that we set up before school, which is not mandatory. We do it as a team because we want to. And this is just your, your, your team particularly. My eighth grade team, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we set a note taker and an agenda slash lead for each quarter. And they, those people kind of, well, the lead especially t- just sets the, sets the norms and sets the atmosphere for the meetings coming up. We have one particular teacher who's really good at like, okay, okay, well let's, let's table that for now. Let's move on. And I actually really appreciate that because I think sometimes when we're in collaborative meetings, we can focus on things and, be negative and he's really good at being 
okay, let's let's table that for now. Let's move on to the you know let's keep our agenda. Let's Focusing stick. on the, mm-hmm. the the items at hand. Mm-hmm. And so and we understand that the leader is the leader. That's who has volunteered, and what they say is what we do, and that's part of just our culture as a team. So. So I hear norms. I hear having a setting an agenda. Setting an agenda and having kind of a a. a Strong leader might team leader a yeah. team leader yeah. a team leader <laughs> that has that leader. agenda has that agenda in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, David, uh, yeah, I'm. Our department for math is pretty small, it, and so we've taken on more formal structures and kind of keeping each other accountable. And I say one of the main things outside of what you guys said that we do is um, really track our data closely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody's into data nowadays, but I think it helps for us to you know when we arrive at a certain assessment compare results for students, you know, and like that does make some teachers uncomfortable, I think, but um, we have a pretty unified like cutoff grade or like expected grade for students to get. And so when that doesn't happen, which, you know, it hasn't in some cases at the start of this year, it's like, well, what are we doing? You know, some of the teachers who have high results, what are you doing in your classroom that works better? Um, So I think that transparency is really important and um, being okay with you know, showing your student results and comparing and contrasting what works and what doesn't. Have you ever had a situation where, you know, holding someone accountable has gone wrong? Yes. <laughs> I've had a teacher who had more experience Greg jumps in immediately. <laughs> start crying oh, because no. she didn't get a, a project in. And it's just because of life circumstances. She was going through a really tough time and just didn't have the opportunity to get things done. And I'm just standing there like, what, you know, kind of frozen, like, what do I do now? Because... You know, we're supposed to meet this deadline. Deadline's not met, um, but I have this 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 professional who's my colleague who is having a rough time of it personally. Then that's what's what's stopping her. So it's and what do you do? Um, get help. Get the principal to oh. come in and and just say, hey, you know, it try try to be as understanding as as possible. And then if it's a project that needs to be done, maybe either, either take it on my own or see if, if somebody else can, can fulfill what needed to be done. So it sounds like, I mean, what you would say to your students, have, yeah, e- have empathy. Yeah. <laughs> have yeah. Try to understand where someone's coming from, yeah. I guess. Have norms, keep an agenda, track your data, be nice. Yeah. Basically. Not rocket science, but uh, good suggestions. To pose your own questions for a future Ask Our Teachers segment, you can go to the No Wrong Answers Facebook page, and you'll find a shared Google Doc, what we call our community feedback form. We, you can click on that and not only post questions for Ask Our Teachers, but also give feedback on recent episodes, share ideas for future episodes. Stay tuned. We are going to do Kids These Days after the credits. This episode of No Wrong Answers is sponsored by Teach for America Kansas City. No Wrong Answers retains total editorial control in what our teachers say are their personal opinions, which may not reflect the official policies of the schools and districts they work for. Like us at Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Just search for the No Wrong Answers podcast by Fountain City Frequency when you go to our Facebook page. Again, you can log on to our shared community feedback Google Doc and give us some ideas for future shows. Find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Once you find us, subscribe and leave us a review. It helps. There are no other podcasts like ours giving you a teacherly take on the world. If you've enjoyed the conversation you've heard today, subscribe, leave us a review, and keep the conversation going. Now, Kids these days, what is trending among your kids? Greg, what are your kids into? Um, this isn't so much a trend as a generational gap thing that I just realized. You two rolled through town uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and me and several colleagues. Um, and They were few, in Kansas City. Yeah, they were in Kansas City yeah, and yeah. at Arrowhead. And so uh, me and several colleagues, we, we went, and a few few students went. When we talk about the concert at, at school, you know, I said, yeah, I'm going to go see you too. And, and students would say, 
YouTube, like Y-O-U-T-U-B-E. I'm like, no, YouTube, like YouTube concert, who's playing? And it was just one of those, I just realized there's a generational gap here. And we kind of had a, a, a who's on first moment going for a bit. So what are kids not into? You yeah. too. <laughs> Jamie, what are your kids into? Crocs are coming back. The shoes. The shoes. They're super popular right now in my school. Um, Why? I, <laughs> I asked myself that, too. I actually had a kiddo ask me, hey, what are your Crocs like? I'm like, I don't own a pair. Sorry. Uh, but especially my boys. They're wearing white Crocs. So that's big now. I don't know. I had not heard that. Yeah. Crocs are back. David, what are your kids into? Um, I saw a handful of students at our football game yesterday wearing overalls. Yeah. And so that was new. <laughs> Um, it was just really, I guess, a fashion. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say fashion, and, I'm, and now I'm. Pay, I mean, so uh, we talk we, about like late '80s, early '90s. Yes, uh, and we recently uh, had our cross, homecoming cross yeah. overalls. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and and we recently had a homecoming dance, and I was like looking at things kids are wearing, and like just a lot of retro styles in terms of like you know these like really eccentrically patterned shirts and oh, yeah. things like that. It's 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 weird, but like. It's probably been going on for a while, but I'm just starting, I guess, to see <laughs> how, like, you know, the old, like, adage is repeat stuff, but, like, really with our fashion scene, I feel like, you know, the kids are kind of, you know, rewinding. It's, it's pretty tops. entertaining, yeah. Crop <laughs> okay, are yeah. coming back, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks to our teachers this week, Greg Brenner, Jamie Myers, David Persley. Thanks, as always, to Matt Hodap, who produces the podcast, and thank you to KCUR 89.3, Kansas City Public Radio, where we tape. I'm Kyle Palmer, and remember, kids, be nice to your teachers. 